Hello and welcome to episode 154 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Kai Sheffield, head of crypto over at Visa. Kai, how are you? I am great. We have some fascinating stories to cover today. Let's jump in. Oh, let's do exactly that. My God, we've got a new show uh, full of stories. Everything from Facebook and Instagram and apparently getting into NFTs. Of course, we've got to cover LuxRare, the OpenSea competitor and that vampire squid attack. And of course, a big, big month for the whole play to earn sector in the global south. So we're going to go through all of those. Um, we are joined by some fantastic, fantastic guests. We have Elizabeth and Cristiano from Sandclock. Do you guys want to briefly introduce yourselves in Sandclock, starting with Cristiano? Yeah, name's Cristiano, of course. Grew up in Portugal, background is in mathematics. Been aware of Bitcoin and Ethereum since their inception. Uh, in 2018 was when I formally joined the space, conducting research for a blockchain company on ranking algorithms for smart contracts. During DeFi summer, I joined my first DeFi company, Acropolis, and later went on to create Sandclock. Elizabeth. Hi, I'm really excited to be here. I'm Elizabeth. My background is mostly in education and the philanthropic sectors, but I've been working in crypto for a little over a year and been involved for much longer, of course. Really quickly, I'll, I'll kind of tell you what Sandclock is. We're a multi-chain yield optimizer, but we really focus on empowering the user to do whatever they want with their funds. So um, not only do we split principal from yield, but we also empower the user to subdivide that yield however they want and sort of point it like, um, like a hose wherever, wherever the user chooses. So that might mean donating to charity, allocating to another wallet, um, maybe a wallet that you've made for your child or a parent. Um, or a number of other possibilities. And, and yeah, that's kind of Sandclock in a nutshell. Take control of that yield. Um, and last, but by no means least, is Mr. Chris Madden, who's co-founder of Button. Uh, worth 30 seconds on, on yourself, Button, and of course, Flaws NFT. Sure, yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so as uh, Simon said, co-founder of a marketing platform, mobile marketing platform called Button, uh, we're about eight years old in New York City, and then over the last uh, six months, kind of got bitten by the Web3 world as well. So living that Web2 by day, Web3 by night uh, kind of lifestyle and you know, focusing my time there on two things. One, uh, Floor NFTs, which is the home for your NFTs. And we were the first token-gated app um, as a test flight that has kind of a, a token-gated community around it. Um, and then also building LinksDAO uh, with Mike Dudas and Jim Daly, which has been a really fun adventure. And LinksDAO, if you haven't heard of it, is the DAO that's going to buy a golf course. So um, shout out to you guys for, for doing awesome things. And thank you so much for having some amazing guests. Let's kick off with some news. Speaking of Web 2 by day, Web 3 by night, it seems like Facebook and Instagram are apparently exploring plans to showcase, mint and sell NFTs. Uh, and Twitter have also debuted their hexagonal NFT avatars. So um, I'm going to start with Chris on this. When you see Web2 doing NFT, uh, what are your first thoughts? Maybe start with, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Twitter or do you want to start with the Facebook, Instagram thing? What, what jumped out at you? So I, th I think they're two completely different sides of the coin in that one is leveraging and leaning into a behavior that's already emerging on the platform. And you know, we've seen these communities build up around Twitter. Twitter has been the native platform for communication about projects, if not within projects, which has largely been Discord. And so I think it's super smart to try and platform that and kind of lean into building. 
you know, on the Facebook side, I kind of feel the other side in that, you know, they're trying to do the thing that a lot of brands are where they want to be relevant in a world that they see kind of running away from them. Um, and so Instagram a little bit, but in Facebook, I, I see it very much as like a, oh, but we're here too, guys, like come do NFT stuff on Facebook. Um, and I'm a lot less excited about that. But I'm also not a Facebook user. I deleted my account 10 years ago and probably don't intend to have one again. Yeah, that's a, a great summary. Uh, Cristiano, would you agree, disagree? Yeah, I'm, I'm not that optimistic about uh, Meta joining the space. Um, I mean, the, the, the space was, was born out of a desire, the, the need to create autonomous, um, decentralized economies. And Meta is just not it. I think they, they are the complete opposite of this. So I think they will get some initial traction due to their, to their reach. But as soon as they censor their first artist, it will be clear where they stand. And I mean, this is already happening with OpenSea uh, and its competitors, despite OpenSea's network effects. People are moving away from them to full-featured marketplaces that have lower fees, are more decentralized, and just all around better. We'll, we'll come back to OpenSea because of the whole Luxray thing. We've actually got that story a, a little bit later on. Elizabeth, do you have a hexagonal profile pic now in Twitter? And do you know people that have? And what do you think any of that means? Because uh, I, I see lots of profile pics. I see lots of things flying by on Twitter. Why would I want one that's an NFT? Yeah, I, I think it's become very much a status symbol. And, and maybe that's not such a great thing for the crypto space in a lot of ways, actually. Um, I think that one of the things I love most about crypto is, is how accessible it is. And in some ways, I see I see the meta world coming into that as yet another path to accessibility, um, but in another way, similar to how uh, NFT profile photos have sort of become a status symbol. I also think that it can create another barrier to entry. I think one that the path to execution is interesting to compare of you know, Twitter, enabling users to connect a non-custodial wallet where they already have an NFT versus, you know, Facebook, it'll be interesting. Do they, you know, have their own wallet like Novi that is the default, you know, NFT wallet you're supposed to use? Or is it also going to let you bring in a, a non-custodial wallet into the platform? And then I think there are also really interesting implications from a data perspective and for ad targeting. Uh, and so if you think about, you know, a lot of these social media platforms, it's your profile, who you interact with, you know, that's all really valuable data, you know, for their advertising businesses. Now, when you bring an NFT wallet into that, and it's, you know, what collections you own and, you know, who you've traded, who you've interacted with, you know, that's a whole nother data source that I'm sure would be potentially very valuable to these platforms, but it's not clear how consumers will feel about that. Do they understand that, you know, every NFT they've collected could be used to target, you know, ads to them in the future? And will we see kind of a cost per claim NFT as the new cost per app install uh, as kind of new web two, web three marketing businesses? So, I mean, this might be my history as a, a guy in the ads world, but like, I think there are really fascinating implications. I, I want to come to Chris on that in a second, but just listeners, if you have no idea what we're talking about, so Twitter allows you as a Twitter user to connect, as as Kai was saying, whether it's your Coinbase wallet, your MetaMask, your Rainbow, your Ledger. And if you have an NFT stored in there, you can then connect that up through 
into Twitter and then display that NFT as your profile picture on Twitter. And the way they demark that as being one that is actually owned by you is they give you this hexagonal uh, sort of uh, image rather than a circle image that everybody else gets. Um, and I think as Elizabeth was saying, you know, for some people that means different things. It can be sort of a peacocking thing. It can be, I stand for this. It can be, this is just art that I like. Um, so I think that's probably uh, kind of just worth worth saying. And then Kai um, made some interesting points then about you know the data that you're able to get access to as a result. Chris, I know Button is quite close to the whole marketing world. So Web two by day, Web three by night. What are your thoughts on you know the data implications here of the Twitter thing and maybe the Meta thing as well? The interesting thing about the blockchain and all of this, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about it, is it's all sidewards visible. So it doesn't matter if Facebook sells you the NFT or not. Everyone else who has access to that blockchain can see what happened, what NFT, who you bought it from when. And I actually don't think we've seen the beginning yet of some of the problems that's going to cause. Like the same is true, obviously, for any transaction on the blockchain, just sending money, sending Bitcoin, sending Ethereum. And we've been guarded by the fact that the custodial platforms that sit at the edge of the chain and have onboarded most of kind of the modern Western world have protected us from that sideward visibility because most accounts exist inside of a proprietary environment. Um, I'll be interested to um, Kai's point to see whether that's what we see emerge in Facebook because of that sideward visibility. But there's some real privacy challenges um, and some real social challenges. And then to kind of Elizabeth's point, you know, you're starting to see this technology enable patterns of human behavior. And so in profile pictures, you can guarantee 99% of people's profile picture is not their cheapest NFT they like the most. It's the most expensive one that's created the most upside for them. And I think we'll start to see other challenges where when you give humans the ability to start making groups and creating silos and creating exclusivity, we don't historically always do really good things with that. And so there's a lot of kind of ethical and interesting social considerations there as well. Yeah, it definitely goes both ways because... If you think about the NFT space, like the exclusivity of it, it, sometimes it's not just exclusivity. Sometimes it's just community is really like how you would describe it. And it's such a powerful thing. And, and the way that people back projects is like, I love to see that. But on the flip side, like Chris said, it's like, what are the implications of that if we just start becoming more and more exclusive and start narrowing who is included in this conversation and who's included in, in this kind of world? And yeah, I don't know. I don't know what what to think about that. And it's will be interesting for sure to observe going forward. Yeah, and it may also be slightly misleading at times because to check the provenance, you you have to check to manually check the collections yourself. People could just mint an NFT themselves that is not of a, an image owned by them. Yeah, and infiltrates the the in group, so to speak. So. The old uh, right-click save as mint my own NFT, and then Twitter says, "Oh, that you really do own that NFT, whether or not it's part of the original collection uh, <laughs> is a completely different thing." Exactly. Um, I, I want to jump in, uh, throw back to you on this, Kai. Like, there's there's a lot of uh, things that brand, like every brand in the world, every bank in the world, every fintech that I speak to is trying to build their like, what should my Web three strategy be right now? I'm sure you're inundated with that. As you look at the the different moves here, how do you think about a question like that? How does somebody start to move into the NFT space and do so in a way that's that's 
thoughtful and and maybe you know what what do you need to optimize for when you're doing that yeah i think one of the first areas is just recognizing how passionate these communities are and it's not that people are just excited about nfts in general it's they're excited about particular nfts that have certain attributes and properties and you know philosophies that that they ascribe to and so I think we'll see more and more brands look to tap into those existing communities. And you know what Adidas did, you know, with you know Board Apes and and Punk's comic, I think was a great example. You have a traditional brand that is selling you know apparel and making it available to people who earn you know certain NFTs and you know actually purchasing a Board Ape and making it the mascot. Uh, and so I think brands are starting to realize. The idea of coming in and just creating your own branded NFT yourself doesn't mean that anyone is going to want that just because they like NFTs. It's more about are there ways that you, know, you can identify the communities that your customers are participating in right now and show that you know you appreciate and have respect you know for those communities and and be able to do it in a more you know authentic way. And I still believe that you know the same way it was crazy to think that brands would have a Twitter account or a Facebook account and they would be tweeting and interacting with people on the internet, I think you'll see more and more brands have you know, NFT collections uh, and start to, to interact with these communities on a, on a regular basis. And, and I think the brands that do that well have a, a pretty big opportunity. Yeah, Nike acquiring Artifact really sticks out to me as, as kind of a uh, another interesting example where the brands that are close to culture have typically understood this space better than the brands that have seen it as, as pure marketing. So there's a really interesting dynamic there about where culture meets this whole space. Um, so we've got a, a couple minutes left on this, um, Chris. Do you think that... Um, Facebook and Meta is becoming IOI from Ready Player One, or is there is there you know sort of something here that we're being perhaps unkind about, and that maybe there there is some some benefit that they can bring billions of people into this ecosystem? Never actually watched Ready Player One, so I assume you're just talking about the evil corp overlord in some hypothetical dystopian universe. Exactly. So I think inherently bringing more people into the space is a good thing. I think that Web three right now is very fragile. And what it is and means to us will probably be very different than what it is and means to, you know, the next hundred million users. And, you know, I think we've all always hoped that we and the people who uh, are coming at this from kind of a slightly more egalitarian viewpoint might have a bigger voice in helping shape what that becomes for those next hundred million users. And the truth is Facebook is going to have some success because... They're enormous, they have reach, and they have really smart people who are going to think about both how to get it adopted, but also how to make sure that that's corporately viable for them. And so excited to expose more people to it, particularly if we can do it in a way that creates opportunity and community for more, you know, a little skeptical and concerned about you know one of the biggest ad money-making companies in the world being the company that gets to define what Web3 means to hundreds of millions of people. Interesting stuff. All right, I'm sure we'll come back to this one time and time again. We could unpack it forever. So Web2 LARPing at Web3 or um, sort of coming correctly, we'll, we will see. Um, but speaking of the sea, one day after launch, an OpenSea competitor, of course, OpenSea being the biggest marketplace of NFTs, called LuxRare has sold over $100 million in NFTs. So uh, in the first 24 hours, this 
tiny new marketplace that nobody had heard of, hosted more than $105 million in trading volume. Um, I've also seen dashboards that suggest that trading volume was up to 80% of all NFTs traded. Um, there are some questions about the nature of that trading. Um, but un unpack this for me. Kai, I'm, I'm going to start with you. What is Luxrare and how is it different to, to OpenSea in, in your mind? Yeah, I think this is a fascinating story because it, it almost felt like there was this new marketplace that kind of emerged you know, out of nowhere uh, to compete with OpenSea. And they created their own token in a way to try and almost like vampire attack it. So they started with an airdrop. And you know, this is what is enabled when you have you know, this open access and you can see you know, activity happening on a blockchain. They said, I think it was if you've spent more than three ETH uh, on OpenSea, you were eligible to claim, you know, looks tokens, which you can think of almost as like a, re a rewards uh, point or rewards currency, you know, for the platform. And then, you know, to claim them, you actually had to list an NFT. So you had to, they got the supply of people starting to list on their platform in exchange for claiming the airdrop. And then they created this, you know, trading reward system that, you know, as you traded, you earned, you know, looks tokens. And then you could stake those and you could earn a percentage of the fees. And so I think there's a bigger theme here where as OpenSea has grown and has just this incredible amount of volume, you've seen people on Twitter saying, when is, when is there a token? Is it the Web3 ethos that it should come back to, to, to the users of OpenSea? And then here you have this competitor emerge trying to take that approach of you know, incentivizing consumers, providing a token, letting them get a you know, percentage of the fees. The challenge has been, you know, some of the inorganic behavior where now you see wash trading, people trading NFTs back and forth just to earn these tokens. And so I think one, it's it's fascinating to see that you can go from zero to now this marketplace exists and there's there is real volume, uh, but it's still a challenge of you know how do you you know compete with OpenSea you know with better features? How do you get everyday consumers and not you know active traders? Uh, and so I think this is going to be really interesting to watch and time will tell, are they able to create a real competitor starting with the hype of, of this airdrop and token launch? No, it's such an important point. I mean, there are so many individual bits to it that are interesting in their own right, like the airdrop itself. I'm going to give away these reward points for something that I have that's only just launched to everybody that's used my competitor. Like I can just do that because all of the data just kind of sits there. So now I've just given them and all they have to do is claim them. But to claim them, they have to use my product for the first time. And when they use my product for the first time, I'll also reward them with some more of these points. And the other thing I'll do is when they've got these points, they then get a sort of distribution um, in more of those points and potentially even more ETH for anybody that's using the platform day by day. So OpenSea, as many of you are aware, takes a 2.5% cut of any NFT that's traded through its platform. So that's how they make money. And what's crazy about OpenSea is because I can see all of the transactions happening on that marketplace, I can figure out their daily revenue just by dividing it by 2.5% you know, and figuring out how much is going through that platform. But what Luxrare said is, well, when we call our fee 2% and we'll give a portion of this or a good portion of this back to the users who have looks um, and kind of keep them interested and, and use that as a, almost like a marketing tool to, to kind of keep the thing running, which is so, so different. And I wanted to have a go at playing along in the trying to define it because honestly, there's still so much to understand here. 
Uh, Elizabeth, I want to come to you on this. What were your observations when you saw it? You know, we've seen similar things like this with Uniswap and Sushi before. Is this sustainable? Where did your mind go? So I'm mostly interested in in the fact that OpenSea has a competitor. And I, I'm, it actually excites me because I see OpenSea very much as having not quite a monopoly, but sort sort of, because most of its competitors aren't, aren't as comprehensive as OpenSea. And that is really exciting because if the goal is ultimately decentralization, right, and that's always kind of what we're working toward, the more platforms like this that emerge, the closer we're getting to some form of decentralization within reason, of course, where people have options and there's more openness, right? So, um, and I'm also enthusiastic about some of their marketing tactics because I think one of the ways that crypto and, and NFTs uh, lack more than the real world and the traditional world is in marketing and, and less aggressive marketing. So um, I think it's really interesting, actually, and, and it's exciting. And I'm curious where it's going to go. Hmm, interesting to watch. Cristiano, thoughts? Yeah, like you said, this is very reminiscent of uh, the Uniswap sushi saga. I wish they had done other things with a token. I mentioned before that new competitors are emerging on L2s. Some of them have curation markets built on top. Uh, the curation markets allow for discovery of new artists more easily. Um, Sorry, Christiana, could you define a curation market for me in an L2? Because like a lot of our listeners will know exactly what that means. Um, but I think it's worth some definitions. Like I always like to step back to 101s wherever we can. And maybe if one listener finds an L2 definition helpful, great. But if a lot of people find uh, a curation market definition helpful, I know I'd certainly appreciate that. Yeah. So for instance, uh, you see an NFT that you like and you stake Let's say you stake your looks tokens on that NFT. And because you staked, there is a ranking algorithm that is going to be sorting by, I don't know, it could be the, the size of the stake, uh, let's say a hundred looks. And then the people who staked are entitled to a portion of the revenue generated by the sales of that specific NFT. And in order to reward the the first ones to find that piece, you use a bonding curve. But that is that is maybe perhaps too technical. Uh, but if if I were to say it sort of looks like a decentralized art gallery where curators are rewarded for things that become popular in that marketplace, it's maybe yeah. not a perfect metaphor because uh, it doesn't cover it, but it, it sort of gets there. So there are more things that we'll start to see, and there's so much innovation coming in the space. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on, on LuxRare? What, what stood out to you? Yeah, I think we'll remember 2022 is the year of ETH marketplace fragmentation, as a couple people have hit so far. You know, it's a little bit of a monopoly today. And they did some stuff that was super smart. Um, Web3 is about participation. They gave people a way to participate in a way that OpenSea doesn't. Um, and I think it's interesting to remind yourself why it's hard to build an NFT marketplace. And it's not because it's hard to build the site or the smart contract interactions, which are, you know, obviously work. But it's because in order to build a crypto marketplace for Ethereum and Bitcoin, you just need to have some Ethereum and some Bitcoin that's liquid and available on the marketplace. In order to build an NFT marketplace, because every single token is different, you need all of the liquidity. In order to be a relevant marketplace, you need every single listed NFT to also be listed inside of your environment, because otherwise you don't have the inventory for your customers to come and buy. 
So it's actually a really, really challenging thing to disrupt. And it's really interesting looking at the ETH ecosystem here versus the Solana ecosystem, where Solana grew up with, you know, four or five uh, kind of even level player um, marketplaces, and then kind of like an open standard organization in Metaplex that's kind of driving a lot of the standards that they're using and actually now sharing liquidity between them. And so that's where this kind of vampire attack comes in because it looks right needed to attack OpenSea's liquidity to pull it across to their marketplace because otherwise they have kind of a, a marketplace cold starting problem. And that's where the token came in and where in particular, in order to get that token, you had to list at least one NFT on their marketplace. So they were getting supply side liquidity out of kind of letting you come in and participate, which is super smart. I don't think they fully thought through what people would do. Like, I don't think they intended to create the largest wash trading platform that's ever existed. And I think there's serious problems today uh, with that fact. I'm really interested to see what they do to respond. Today, I avoid Luxrare because uh, there's just a lot of weird stuff happening over there. I find it a little risky and concerning, uh, but I do think it's really, really exciting to have a credible competitor uh, to OpenSea and to see fragmentation in the marketplace. I think these in, these incentive mechanisms are so hard to design where you know now I think the rewards paid out were actually higher than the transaction fees. And so you know people are incentivized to just trade back and forth. But it is also interesting how you can really identify wash trading. And for example, I, I think I saw something where a significant portion of the volume was collections that don't have any uh, royalty. They don't have a, a share that goes back to the creator. And so it's like, okay, well, on OpenSea, a lot of NFTs that are traded, 5%, 10% might go back to the creator. If you're wash trading between wallets that you own, doesn't make sense you know, to do that if there's that you know, creator royalty. And so you know, I think you hear concerns of people say, oh, that those large NFT sales, they're all wash trading. It's helpful to have, okay, here's what behavior looks like on OpenSea. Here's what it looks like on LooksRare when there is this incentive, and you can start to identify the different types of you know, ways that consumers are, are interacting with these assets. There was a good study on Decrypt that suggested something of the 10 billion or so that's been traded so far, around 8.5 billion was suspected wash trading based on the analytics. But that means 1.5 billion was not wash trading. And to get to that level of trading volume inside of a week is is still pretty impressive. So maybe the incentives weren't ideal. Maybe not everything happening here is savory, but there's so much to learn from this process. And the age of experimentation is, is very much upon us. Um, but as Chris said, I really like that point. Web3 is fragile. There's a lot being learned here at the frontier and, and long may we continue to learn um, and, and keep consumers and users and, and people in mind in the process. Um, I mean, can you believe it? That brings us up to the break. So we're just gonna take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Visa one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Decoding is back. Our hit video series returns, and this time we're getting under the skin of banks. Over the course of 11 episodes, we're joined by key industry experts to ask, what are the challenges facing traditional banks in 2022? 
From payment rails to lending, we lay out the landscape before looking at the problems banks are facing today and what they can do about them. Watch now on the 11FS YouTube channel or at 11FS.com forward slash decoding. Enjoy. Welcome back. You know, for the second half of the show, we're starting with you know, a big week for play to earn across Africa and India. And so first off, we have a Nigerian Web3 collective called Nestcoin that launched Metaverse Magna, Africa's first crypto gaming DAO. And then we have Carry First's most recent round. And Carry First is a South African publisher of social games uh, that raised a 20 million Series A extension led by uh, Andreessen Horowitz. And then we have YGG, Yield Guild Games India SubDAO raises $6 million. And so major funding for these new gaming entities, you know, this concept of a guild or a scholarship program, uh, which is something we covered on an earlier you know, episode into the metaverse. Uh, would love your thoughts, maybe Chris, starting with you of, you know, what do you think about this play to earn ecosystem and the scholarship programs that are you know, raising money and really you know, expanding in some of these emerging markets. It's funny, I feel like my answer to so many questions is kind of the same, which is there are fundamentally really exciting things here, but I'm very worried about what humans are gonna do with it because we don't have the best reputation for taking things and turning them into good things. So fundamentally, play to earn is really interesting because we live in a dichotomy of people who have time and need money and people who have money and need time. and you know, we also live on the edge of a period of time where we're going to see more destruction of forms of labor than we've ever seen before. And so I think it's really foundationally important and the arbitrage of time and money across the world, across the globe, between you know, groups of people who have different uh, amounts of each of those things is going to be a really, really important trend for the next hundred years. And I think things that are in the shape of play to earn can actually play a really, really big and important role there. I always get a little bit uh, nervous when I start seeing kind of people uh, collateralizing that and rolling it up into a scenario where the folks who maybe already had more money to begin with can you know, create leverage against other people use, making that kind of time money arbitrage. And so the scholarship model is one where I'm like, that's interesting. It's really smart. Um, and I actually know some people personally that are making a ton of money doing this. Um, but I don't know how aligned it is uh, with the ultimate model that we want to find. Um, not a, just musings right now, honestly. Yeah, maybe uh, Elizabeth would, would love your reactions to this. Of like play to earn in general, it seems like you know we're seeing gaming and DeFi you know start to merge together, and I think it's also these scholarship programs. They're teaching people how to play games, but they're also teaching people how to manage the crypto assets they make playing that game. And so many times it's kind of this on-ramp into DeFi and into getting crypto wallets set up. Curious your your thoughts and reactions to these. Yeah, like I said before, I'm a really big fan of real world adoption and that kind of being the ultimate goal. And in that regard, I do think that there's a lot of potential and potential upside for this to be a really good thing. But I'm also kind of with Chris that I have some hesitations about some of the potential ways that it's lacking and that humans might kind of mess around with this. Uh, having said that, similar to anything in this space, like we're still so young in this space. And sometimes we become very critical of things like this. And, and if you think about it, 
if it's only been around for a few years, what's it going to be like in 10 years or 20 years? And how much improvement are we going to see with these types of models? So. And, and Cristiano, do, do you see this as a, an on-ramp into DeFi and into crypto you know, in these in these markets? Yeah, that is, that is perhaps the most exciting aspect of it for me specifically. I'm sure others would disagree, but I'm really looking forward to seeing a bunch of kids being onboarded to this space through video games and perhaps hopefully the the children of prominent politicians maybe that will be the thing that will bring about clarity to the space regulatory clarity yeah i think it's a great point cristiano like the the clarity would be would be super helpful for all of this and i think on this play to earn i i, I feel two things about it at the same time on the one hand if you can make money for doing something you enjoy, great. Like, let's just do more of that and let's find new ec economies. If we start to live in a world where more of our lives are digital, which seems pretty obvious, and more of our life is virtual, we have superpowers all of a sudden. Like, hanging out with my family in this virtual space gives me this sense of presence and surely that presence should have an economy that lives within it. So there's there's real upside that can be had. But the flip side is, if the only way I can make money to pay the bills or to eat is by playing this game, it suddenly becomes a grind in this dystopian thing. The answer will, as always, probably be somewhere in the middle of those two things, where bad things happen, good things happen, but we just sort of model forward. But I, I like what Play to Earn points to. It points to contribute to earn. It points to rewarding people for p participating in a value add kind of way to the ecosystem rather than just pure extraction of value. And that's exciting. If you take that concept away from, you know, like either extreme, then you end up in this interesting place where like, what does that mean for my business model over the next couple of decades? How could I think about my customers, my partners in a way where I'm rewarding them and I'm creating an economy around that for different industries? How can my intellectual property live beyond this moment and, and have that, that ownership? Uh, and, and very simply, like, if you think about it, it, there have been a whole bunch of games that were really, really popular, uh, that were massive, that were online. And then suddenly the publisher either went out of business or just turned off the servers for that game. And then any money that you'd spent, maybe you'd spent hundreds, thousands of dollars inside of that game just disappeared. So the ability to digitally own something is really important. The ability to potentially make a living is really important. And let's be honest, people already make money in the metaverse, right? And look at your favorite Twitch streamer, look at YouTubers, look at that creator space. So it's already happening, it's already here. It's just, you know, do we wanna have guilds? Do we wanna bring people into this space? Yes, but let's be thoughtful in the process. You can even go further back and look at RunScape. People were botting and um, farming and just selling gold to make money. So this is this is not necessarily a new thing. It's it's just becoming more mainstream now. It, it's so interesting how many people in Web three I speak to that are organizers of DAOs or that have done well in this space used to play RuneScape when they were younger, um, kind of consistently, or they were very good at World of Warcraft because they're they're stacking up all of these different assets and they're they're managing to play the the great online game. Kai, I'm going to turn the question around because, you know, when you host, you, you don't always get to opinionate. Like, what are your thoughts um, on, you know, 
the the potential risks and benefits to to the whole uh, kind of space of play to earn and what it could mean. Yeah, I I think the risk you know is is it sustainable you know to give people money for playing a game if they're only there you know to be able to earn money and it's not you know something that they're doing for fun. It's not an ecosystem that they enjoy, and I think. You know, it's really this fascinating economic experiment. You know, if you follow the Axie Infinity ecosystem, there are you know people that are proposing different you know, economic policies of you know how one currency should be burned or distributed versus another, and so it's really hard to balance these economies when people could take money out of them. Like designing an in-game economy when no one could take any money out, I think is very different when you know people could farm a certain amount of a cryptocurrency and cash it out. And so I think there's a lot of complexity and and really hard to design these. I think that there's a really interesting element of community that's happening here and particularly the role that guilds play where you know there are people who you know they see that as as like an extended family and they're you know meeting new friends uh, and significant others and they're kind of interacting with these guilds as is almost like an alma mater or an identity of, of where you went to college. And so I think there is kind of this Web3 future of education, you know, particularly for kids being able to have a community that teaches them crypto and teaches them through a game, which is, you know, fun enough to play. But it, it also feels like, you know, any individual game, you know, it's very much a hit driven business and, you know, could just lose popularity. And so will these guilds be able to spread across many different games? Uh, and then if you're a game developer, it's like there's these new entities you have to have a relationship with. Because if that guild has you know 50,000 people that are following them and associating with that brand, and that you know the owner of the guild or the leader of the guild brings them to your game, you know that becomes a, a really powerful user acquisition driver. And so I think it's like these kind of new roles and entities both merging gaming and crypto could play a major role in in the decisions that consumers make where they game, what wallets they use, what DeFi protocols they use. And I think that's going to be a, a really big on-ramp. It comes back to incentives, doesn't it? That, that that's, that's that word. And, and how much of this is making a new market versus taking the existing market? You know, we saw Ubisoft launch some NFTs and all of their fans just vomited all over the idea, absolutely hated it. And in fact, gamers generally just really dislike the idea of NFTs. You know, there's questions about how much carbon does it burn? How carbon intense is it? There's questions about, you know, is this just another money grabbing uh, gaming studio? So there's a real lot of lot of doubt out there uh, about this, this generally. So we'll, we'll see how it evolves. Chris, final thoughts on this before we move to stories we didn't have time to cover. Is, is there anything that you see as you look at this that gives us uh, room for hope? Uh, or are you still sort of uh, not so sure on this one? No, there's lots, lots of good stuff in here. And I, I think the most interesting thing about NFTs and you know, our selection of the term non-fungible token, it's truly the worst name ever, is the vast majority of people who are using and interacting with NFTs in a year probably shouldn't know that they're even using NFTs. NFTs are like a means to an end versus uh, the purpose for the whole interaction. And so I think this, this ecosystem will look pretty different in a year. And I don't think people will be thinking about NFTs and will have found better metaphors, better value exchanges. It's definitely going to go forward and grow, um, hopefully in a more consumer-friendly way than 
think it does today. Fantastic. Well, Kai, um, we've got to that part of the show again where we cover off some stories we didn't have time to cover. Do you want to lead us out um, and give some shout outs to some some interesting stories that we saw? Yeah. So starting with Web3 proof of attendance startup raises 10 million to mint shared memories as NFTs. And so I believe it's pronounced Pope, uh, but it's which stands as proof of attendance protocol. Uh, and it wants to use NFTs to create Internet communities and reward uh, individual participation for taking part in something like an event. Uh, so it's organized around badges. Uh, so a user could scan a QR code to receive you know, an NFT memento that could unlock admission to an online community. Uh, so I think this is really fascinating in the sense of, you know, this notion of like checking in places and, you know, Foursquare, you know, way back in the day of like having this online to offline, you know, you went to an event and that's now, you know, part of your profile. You know, we're now seeing that go, you know, directly on chain. And so I think we could get to this point. It's it's crazy to think that there were years ago when the idea of people uploading content to the internet all day sounded wild. Like, why would you do that? Now we're getting closer to a world where there might be people uploading content to a blockchain on chain all day where every event you go to becomes this proof of attendance badge that then sits in your wallet that gets you access to other communities. I think this is a really fascinating direction the space is going. Yeah, Kai, when people ask me about this one, I always uh, ask them to imagine being there at the biggest win of their favorite sports team. So I think about Liverpool winning the Champions League in 2005. If I could just easily prove that in my Web3 wallet, that'd that'd be pretty great. Um, And it's non-transferable as well. The next story we didn't have time to cover is China's digital currency has apparently done more than $8.3 billion in payments over the last six months. Um, The number of users went up at a quicker pace than transaction volume with 261 million users by the end of last year, an increase of a mere 240 million. Although a limited number of businesses still accept the digital yuan um, because for them, there isn't a clear advantage of why people should use the currency instead of Alipay or WeChat. So if you think about it, Kai, you've got uh, 240 million people that have them. They've done 8.3 billion in payments volumes. The, you know, the math on that isn't isn't massive, but it's not tiny either. But I always wonder, like, it's one thing to build the currency. It's another thing for it to be better than the existing solutions. Um, so how long until, you know, Alipay and WeChat have to support this and it's top-down state-driven? And how much is this solving consumer problems? Central bank digital currencies can be a great way to do state welfare and benefits, but they're also a privacy issue and privacy nightmare because if they're the only thing that you get to use, the central state gets to see everything you're doing ever. So we've got to be thoughtful about this, and I'm sure we'll come back to this because the Fed just covered the release their paper on CBDCs, um, and then there's the role of stablecoins, so there's going to be so much more to unpack. All right, we're going to bring our guests back in uh, for Twitter of the Week. Tweet, tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Okay, last on today's show, we want to give a shout out to Tweet of the Week, which comes from Serena Williams herself, announcing a collaboration with SoRare. So Serena says, GM, SoRare. Uh, excited to join as a board advisor and shape Web3 and the future of sports fandom. Uh, Chris, thoughts on this? Sports and NFTs going to be a thing. Um, I hear something about Linksdale. Uh, yeah, I think anywhere where you have like really, really strong communities of people who are passionate about things, there's opportunities to tokenize and create more opportunity for everyone to be not just, you know, a fan, but a participant and a member. 
um, and big Serena Williams fan, so you know, excited to see her getting closer to the space. Um, I don't, I don't have any experience or knowledge with So Rare in particular. Uh, so So Rare is like um, top shots, but for f- um, soccer, football, um, to use the proper word. Um, so it's, it's, it's a marketplace and game that's built around that. Um, Cristiano, uh, thoughts on sports and NFTs, a thing or not a thing? Yeah, I, I completely agree with what with Chris's take. Awesome. Elizabeth, celebrities and NFTs? I mean, for better or for worse, it leads us on the road to real world adoption. More exposure, more people getting involved, and that's the goal. So. I'm for it. Kai. GM is mainstream. That That's what this... I'm curious, is GM going to, to be something that lasts, you know, many years and just continues as this, you know, crypto taking over the world in terms of everyday greetings? Uh, or is it now saturated that every celebrity says GM and it's it's not special anymore? It, it seems to have uh, more than halved as the price of crypto is more than halved. So let's see if if it, it survives. Uh, that sort of optimism of a bull market is is uh, is waning. So we'll see. But I, I still like a GM now and then. What can I say? But I've always been a boomer. You know, like it's it's just it takes me a while to let go of those habits. Um, you know, so they said it is what it is. Everyone needs a good GM. Everyone needs a good GM every now and again. Big good morning to you, sir, indeed. All right, um, that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you and uh, your company? So let's start with Elizabeth. Yeah, so you can go to sandclock.org. Uh, we have our full website launching very soon, next couple of weeks, um, most likely. Or you can go to our Twitter, which is just sandclock.org, and you can click around, find our medium, which is where most of our information flow is. Fantastic. And Cristiano? Yeah, well, um, since Elizabeth covered Sandclock, I must now plug my own Twitter. And <laughs> that would be 0xCristiano. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And Chris? Yeah, at, at Chris Madden on uh, Twitter. And then uh, to learn more about Button, use button.com. And Floors NFT? Uh, FloorNFTs.io or FloorNFTs on Twitter. Do check it out, people. Come say hi. And uh, Kai. On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. You'll find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or at 11fs.com. Please do get in touch if you want to hear anything new on the show. So email podcasts at 11fs.com. And you can find us on all of the regular socials. So you'll find at BeChain Insider on Twitter. Remember to uh, review the show and share it with all your friends. Pass on the pod, people. Uh, Thank you so much. And we'll speak to you soon.